When you hear the word migrant, what picture does that conjure in your head? And if I say expat, what sort of person do you imagine now? Migrant or expat, what do you call the millions of British people who are living overseas today? And why do we hear so little about them? We often think that British emigration is a thing of the past. I think a fact that a lot of people won't know is that even in the present day, Britain has an emigration rate that is one of the highest in the world. And if that comes as a surprise, just stop a moment to think about the British people you personally know who've gone to live abroad. How many can you count? And which countries have they settled in? British citizens are known for being globally dispersed. There is not a single country in the world where British citizens don't currently live. So fasten your seatbelts and prepare for takeoff with me, Mukti Jane Campion, as we set out to explore the world of 21st century British migration. Welcome to Departures, a podcast series from the Migration Museum, exploring 400 years of British emigration. Episode 9, Brits Abroad Today. I was only 23 and I saw the advert for the job in El Salvador. Well, I just thought, why not? My parents took me to the airport and I took one suitcase. I really didn't take much at all. I just took a few clothes. I remember feeling very excited, but I was very, very sad. I had to say goodbye to my family and it did feel strange, uh, but I wanted to see what life could offer me somewhere else. Britain is a nation of itchy feet. Hundreds of thousands of people leave each year, more than from almost any other developed country. I think in the current day, we're looking at something like 5 million British citizens living abroad. And we should be really clear that those are people who only hold British nationality. British citizenship. Professor Mikola Benson of Lancaster University is a sociologist who studies British emigration from the late 20th century to the present day. So we're not talking about people who have acquired citizenship of another state. We're talking about UK citizens who live abroad at this point in time. Perhaps surprisingly, Britain doesn't count the people who leave its shores to settle abroad, so emigration statistics have to be estimated from different sources, such as the International Passenger Survey and UN data on, for example, the numbers of overseas citizens registered in different countries. When we look at kind of net migration figures in the UK, which are the statistics that the government uses, it's the difference between the number of people entering the country and the number of people leaving the country for the purposes of long-term migration. They're not the people who just go on holiday somewhere else. They're the people who leave the country with the intention of being abroad for 12 months or longer. Defining what British migration means today perhaps also requires us to understand and distinguish it from what it has meant in the past. If we think about what migration means, it's about when people move across a political boundary and they choose to live in a polity 
different from the one in which they were born or brought up in, and they live according to the rules and norms of the new society of which they're a part. This is Guminda Bambra, Professor of Postcolonial and Decolonial Studies at the University of Sussex. So a migrant is someone who crosses a political boundary and lives according to the rules of the society into which they come. That's today. That's today. In the past, European movement didn't result in Europeans going to these lands which were occupied by indigenous peoples, places like Abayala, which we now know as the Americas or Australia, New Zealand, and they didn't live according to the rules and norms of the people who inhabited those lands and who had sovereign right over those lands. Rather, they eliminated them, they dispossessed them, and they appropriated their land. And they constructed new societies on the basis of that. That, to me, is not what a migrant does. That's what a settler colonist does. And so I would want to make a distinction between European movement in the past, which was about settler colonialism, and migration in the present. Because if you think about where it is that British people went to when they moved, and you think about the political systems that have been established in those places, so again, I refer, you know, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, these are largely new political states that were created on the basis, on the founding moments of dispossession and elimination by British people who went there. Those former British colonies were still attracting large numbers of British settlers well into the 20th century through official government schemes, and this history still shapes much of modern British emigration. What we know is that there are some destinations which definitely have much larger numbers of British citizens Perhaps unsurprisingly, Australia is number one in the world. And I think part of that is explained by British citizens were appealed to by those old dominions when they were looking to continue to people their workforce. So Australia rates particularly highly because of that continued labour migration to Australia promoted by the Australian government. Former colonies such as Australia and New Zealand have long welcomed health professionals from the UK, whose training and qualifications are similar, thanks to their shared history. So my name's Adam. Um, I'm 33. I'm a doctor and I moved to New Zealand in 2013. Adam was born near Birmingham and 10 years ago he was working long hours as a junior doctor in the NHS. As he listened to stories of colleagues who'd gone to Australia and New Zealand, he decided it was something he wanted to try for himself. Initially, I only planned to come out for a year. And then towards the end of that year, I met my now wife, who's a Kiwi. You know, obviously, that's a big reason to stay in New Zealand, but we're both very happy here. So tell me what it is that you feel has improved in your life by moving to New Zealand. I think probably the work-life balance is better here. It's a very easy country to, you know, it's quite small, it's quite low population density, and it's very easy to just get out into the outdoors, have a wide range of environments and activities that you can enjoy, really. And I think the the work is a bit more relaxed. I think there's a little bit more freedom to make your career decisions. There's certainly more flexibility. There's a stronger representation of junior doctors in terms of unions and so there's much better support and I think a better deal really in terms of that you can choose when you want to have your holiday better you know protection on working hours 
it's taken me a while. I now feel that New Zealand is my home. The ease with which British people can settle into so many other countries where English is the dominant language is clearly a major factor in migration decisions. But just speaking English also puts British people at a huge advantage for international jobs anywhere. Being British in the global economy, speaking English because of the consequences of colonialism, putting it quite a good position. So those historical conditions come together to inform those migrations as well. My name is Rebecca Baker. I'm 31 years old. I'm a teacher and I have uh, lived in a few different countries since I was 23. Um, I moved to El Salvador, then I moved to France, then I moved to Brunei, and now I live in Portugal. And I'm really lucky in that because I'm a teacher, there's always international schools that are looking for British teachers. It's definitely a bit of a guilt of mine that I think so many of the jobs that I've got I wouldn't have got if it wasn't for the British passport even if everything else was the same about me um, the British accent the British way of thinking it, it's very it's, I feel very conflicted about it but it is very much what many international schools are looking for and the fact that English is a global language clearly gives you currency as well Yes, that that helps a lot. And for example, uh, my year 13s are considering universities at the moment. And before Brexit, you know, really many of them would have gone to the UK for university. Now it's the costs are prohibitively expensive. But the fact that they've had a British education, they're fluent in English, means that actually universities in Germany and Holland and Italy are opened up to them as well, when it might, they might not have had so many options otherwise. Of course, it's not just jobs that take Brits abroad. Very often we think about the economic reasons why people move, so we link migration to labour, which of course is still a really significant feature of British emigration. But there are all sorts of other things coming together too. Questions of family reunion, the incidence of dual national families, for example, has been on the rise. And that can be part of that. People moving for love. There are also, especially until until now, there were the possibilities offered by things like the freedom of movement agreements within the European Union. My name's Peter. I'm 48. I've been living in Malta for about five years. I was brought up in the UK where I was born and my relationship brought me here. I had family living here at the time. Also, the climate was a big factor. I was getting away from uh, the cold, murky wet of the UK and coming to a different climate. I have a lovely place to live and, and a beautiful view and I can wake up in the morning and jump in the sea. And that for me is, is a fantastic luxury. You can just drive to a beach in about half an hour. There's a lot of blessings um, to where I live. The life you're living to many people will sound like being on a permanent holiday, you know, half an hour to the beach, sunshines every day, jump in the sea. Is that how it feels? Is that what you've opted for, a lifestyle which is about being permanently on holiday? There are times when it feels like that, yes, because, I mean, my main source of income actually comes from property in the UK, and that does allow me a great deal of freedom. I would say a semi-permanent holiday. How easy was it to get the immigration status? Were you able to, to come to Malta quite readily? Yeah, it wasn't any problem at all, because at the time, um, everyone was in the EU, and so, and so moving across was fine. 
And is there any problem about your status now that Britain has left the EU? Not so far. I've applied for a, a residence extension, uh, which wasn't too difficult. It was three hours in a waiting room and then filling out some forms. So, so far, so good. But we'll have to see what happens. It's uncertain in lots of ways what the future will be for emigration from Britain to the EU. And this is certainly something that the campaign groups, that the advocacy groups for the rights of British citizens who live abroad are very concerned about because all of those opportunities that it gave them for social mobility, for family reunion, are all gone. And and I know that there's a great deal of sadness about the fact that the things that made their lives possible will no longer be possible for future generations of British citizens who might like to uh, live abroad or will no longer be as easy, shall we say. Because, of course, people will still be able to migrate. It's just that the terms governing it will mean that it might change the demographic profile of who can migrate, probably pitching it much more towards people who have larger amounts of resource, who have jobs to go to, who have income. So again, much more towards the kind of elite and the upper middle classes. Brexit has come as a big shock to many of those British who bought a place on the continent for their retirement years, such as in Spain, which is home to the second largest population of British citizens abroad. In consequence of actions by the Spanish government from the 1980s onwards to attract particular forms of property investment as they sought to kind of rebuild their economy post-dictatorship. And those, of course, were linked to tourism. And we know that the Spanish coastline is home to a lot of British citizens, although that is not the entire story, um, because there are British people who don't live on the coast. Uh, who work in Spain. So it's not just the story of retirement, migration and pensioners, although Spain is home to the largest British population in Europe and 30% of that population are of pensionable age and above. Officially, the figures list it at somewhere around 300,000. Unofficially, and including people who might spend part of the year there, we think it's closer to a million. In the years before the 2016 referendum on European Union membership, there was much attention given to the impact of freedom of movement on the levels of migration into Britain from other parts of the EU. But far less was said about how British people were amongst the greatest beneficiaries of that freedom of movement. Britain has been exporting people all around the EU, well, since before it joined the EU, at relatively high levels. The most recent statistics that we have from the UN would suggest that 1.4 million British-born people live in EU member states. So that's quite high. What we also know is that the kind of the demographic profile from the UK includes a very high percentage of people who have tertiary level education. Actually, British citizens who emigrate tend to be highly educated. In the early 2000s, Mikola Benson conducted research on British people living in France to try and understand their motives for moving. These were people who'd, who'd up sticks, who'd left the UK and they'd gone and settled in this incredibly rural area in France, um, the Lot. It's one of the poorest departments in France. They weren't moving for work. They didn't have jobs to go to. They might be thinking about working when they got there. And they were leaving Britain and they would characterise Britain quite often in quite negative terms. 
Um, and the context to this in lots of cases, so if I talk about the people who left in the early 1990s, people losing their jobs because of public sector restructuring. So people who worked in the civil service, people who worked in education, people who worked in local authorities, people who worked for the post office, and thinking, okay, well, what could I do if I took redundancy and the packages associated with that? Saying, well, look, you know, maybe now is the time for me to go and try out this thing. I've always wanted to live somewhere else. I'll go and try and live there. And they did. And probably being in a position where they could buy a property, they were talking about how exhausting um, they had found all of that kind of restructuring of the workplace, how they didn't want to be part of that kind of competitive environment any longer, and thinking that there must be more to life. It was exactly that thought that came to Martine Hunt, a British civil engineer in her 20s, then working in the North Sea oil industry. I was working up in Scotland at the time. It was quite difficult up there. And I thought there must be more to life and put all of my belongings into the car. At the time, I could fit them all into the car. Drove over to France and took some lessons and started learning French. That was about 30 years ago, and I've been there ever since. Being an engineer in France is something that's very highly looked upon. Um, being an engineer in the UK, they tend to think that you're a car mechanic. I'm exaggerating slightly, but working in France was quite different just because of the, the different culture. And how fluent was your French when you got your first job? Uh, terrible, terrible. In fact, the first job I got was with Hewlett-Packard. And I think one of the reasons I was employed was because I could speak good English. And so I would help the French with their English and they would help me with my French. Bonjour. Bonjour. Salut. Comment ça va? We can see that nearly 80% of British citizens who live in the EU are of working age and below. That's really significant. The other thing about British citizens who live in Europe is that, on the whole, they're incredibly well economically and socially integrated. They go and they work in the countries that they live, in all sorts of sectors. They have children, they're in dual national families. And I think that the success of their integration is part of the reason we know so little about them. Je, tu, il, elle, j'aime, tu aimes, il aime. And how did your French improve? It improved quite quickly just because I refused to socialise with the Brits, basically. So I was very much in a French environment, which is very difficult when you're in your late 20s and you start speaking like a sort of five-year-old and people instinctively treat you as a five-year-old. So that was quite difficult, but it was the only way I could learn the language because I'm not very good at languages and putting yourself in the in the pots, if you like, is means that you have to learn it as fast as possible. You've got no other means to communicate. But I do love speaking French, actually. 30 years on, and Martine is married to a Frenchman and well settled into a French way of life. The lifestyle in, in the south of France, it's sort of slightly laid back. You've got a nice weather. I like the aperitif, the going to the market. I think if you live in other countries, you get to appreciate why they behave in the ways they do. One thing that is striking when looking at British emigration today compared with the past is that there are very few people now leaving to escape conditions of abject poverty and starvation. And most of today's migrants are highly privileged, 
even if just by virtue of being British. You know, I'm not talking about people who are absolutely privileged. We're not talking about the world's super rich. We might not even be talking about the upper middle classes, to be honest. Um, we're talking about people who are structurally privileged. And that includes having a British passport. We should never underestimate how valuable that document is in terms of allowing us entry into countries. And yes, there are other countries who have as high levels of visa entry as Britain does. But I think it's undeniable that the reason that a British passport gives us so much visa entry is because of its colonial history. Right now, I'm looking out of my window at the Empire State Building. I just moved into a new apartment and I have a, a nice view of a chunk of Manhattan. And it's sort of about inhabiting the world that I grew up looking at on TV. Uh, I remember seeing these buildings when I was a kid and, and imagining just kind of their tallness. And now I'm literally looking straight at it. That is the part that has kind of lived up to my expectations. I'm Matthew Brown. I'm 36. I live in New York City in the United States of America, and, and I'm a software engineer. And tell me what it was that attracted you to work in New York. Frankly, you can get paid a little more, but also it's always been a dream of mine to live in America. As a kind of kid growing up in London, uh, I remember being surrounded by lots of old stuff. And America, through the television and, and through movies, offered something that was new and kind of fun, zany, glamour. So I was wowed by that as a kid. And since living in New York, Matthew says he's discovered some unexpected benefits. It removed some of the class consciousness that inhibited me in the UK. That's been tremendously liberating. America does obviously have notions of class and and I actually fit very neatly kind of towards the top just because I'm British. I, I realized I could speak up in meetings with clients and people would sort of kind of hush and kind of respect what I was saying. And I think that wasn't because I was saying anything particularly wise. It was more because I speak with this English accent and Americans have sort of been taught through our cultural exports, TV and, and, and movies, that British people are somehow kind of smarter and kind of wiser. I sort of feel like I have a, an extra worth in the US because of my kind of exoticness that I don't have in the UK. So far, we've been hearing from people who've moved abroad for adventure, better weather, just a different lifestyle. But there are also people who are leaving today because the country no longer feels safe or a place where they can see a future for themselves and their families. This is not a new phenomenon. In her book, Leaving England, Charlotte Erickson quotes from 19th century emigrant letters, which eloquently expressed their fears about the country of their birth. I have left the country cowering with doubt and danger, where the rich man trembles and the poor man frowns where all repine at the present and dread the future. Though I had a good situation, my mind was filled with dark forebodings about the future. According to Professor Mikola Benson, this so-called 
bad Britain narrative is a recurring theme in her interviews with modern British migrants. They regularly explain why they've left Britain in terms of their perceptions of problems in Britain. But whether that is a kind of concern about the kind of retraction of economic opportunity, whether it's about uh, political decision-making about going to war. So I have stories from people who left the UK in the kind of late 1990s, early 2000s, seeing that we were about to enter the Iraq war. You know, there are always these things that come together that say, well, you know, Britain, Britain wasn't that great a place at that time. And so I left partly because I didn't like what was happening in Britain. And I wonder whether some of the narrative making around leaving Britain in Brexit times, the kind of discussion around the insularity of Britain, um, the anti-migrant rhetoric and sentiment, rising racism, is being mobilised in similar ways to the way that we've seen it before. My name's Paul Wu. I'm 56 years old. I was born in Glasgow, Scotland, and myself and my family moved from the UK to Sweden a year and a half ago motivated in large part by Brexit and feeling like it had emboldened racism in the country. It became acceptable to start, for instance, on the tram, people making chinky eyes towards my children, which I hadn't come across for years. And that just brought up such a lot of bad memories from when I was growing up in the 70s. And it really made me feel like I wasn't welcome, we weren't welcome. It does feel like I'm sort of divorcing Britain, divorcing the UK, because it's quite traumatic. There's a sense that it's something that I've lived with for all my life, the sense of being British, and having to let go of that in some ways and having to push that away and try and embrace Swedish culture. Maybe a Swedish identity is very difficult. Why Sweden? Because Paul's wife is Swedish, and they've been visiting her family every summer since their children were young. So on arrival, they had a ready-made support network and a sense of settling into a country which had a more equal society and one that was more in tune with their values. So we have moved from a kind of South London home to a 17th century farmhouse with acres of land. I've been interested in the idea of minimising our kind of carbon footprint and our impact on the world. You know, this house, even though it's old, it's got solar panels for hot water. So in the summers, we never have to use electricity or use anything to have scorching hot water. And that's very efficient. And, you know, we've got masses of fruit and we can grow our own vegetables in a vegetable patch, even though it's quite hard work. Both of our cars are, are run on biogas, uh, which is locally produced. For Paul Wu, moving to Sweden may have been triggered by Brexit, but that was clearly only one of several push and pull factors. And that's often the case. The decision to emigrate is rarely for just one reason. It happens against a backdrop where there are many different factors at play, some of which may not even be explicitly thought of. It's interesting that almost all of the overseas British people I've spoken to for this podcast describe transnational migration stories in their recent family past, 
which have perhaps embedded a greater readiness to move in subsequent generations. Migration decision-making is very rarely one person on their own making a choice. They take place within families through a range of factors from those kind of big macroeconomic geopolitical considerations, as well as things like what qualifications people have, what resources they, they can draw on, whether that's financial, whether it's social, so what types of social networks people have in the place that they might be interested in going to, what you imagine you know about the place that you're going to, um, not only in literature and in film, but also on the pages of lifestyle magazines. And so those things are part of that story as well. And very strange individual circumstances can be caught up in, in this. You know, strained family relationships might be part of the reason people are thinking, OK, well, I'll go and try and live somewhere else far away from this difficult situation. And everything you're saying, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking applied 400 years ago. Exactly, exactly. And I think that, you know, in a world where we believe that being settled is the norm, that actually we probably want to think again, because migration is a long-standing factor in the way the world has been made. And it continues to be so today. And yet British emigration, its long history, the impacts it's had and the privileges that it confers are still largely missing from the national conversation about Britain and its attitudes to immigration and citizenship today. Increasingly, our national narrative has become one of kind of a deep-seated indigenous belonging where, you know, we're from here and nobody has moved for centuries. It's just not true. And that's where the national conversation needs to move. It needs to recognise that just as migration into Britain is a long part of our history, leaving Britain is also part of that history too. Departures was produced and presented by Mukti Jane Campion. Title music is by Shakira Malkani. Readings were by Adrian Prater and I'm Ali Hall. The podcast series is a culture-wise production for the Migration Museum and has been supported by the Arts Council, England. If you've enjoyed these podcasts, please tell your friends. And, of course, we'd love you to share on social media. And if you'd like to know more about the Migration Museum and current exhibitions, visit the website www.migrationmuseum.org.